Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Neil Pachy. Neil is an MBE and was born with a degenerative eye conditioning known as retinitis pigmentosa. His sight loss has played a constant factor in his life, helping him to develop his problem-solving skills, adaptability, and resilience. Neil became a full-time athlete in 2006, following his graduation from the University of Aberdeen. With British Athletics, he achieved selection to represent Paralympics GB at Beijing 2008 in the 100 metres and the 200 metres. A disappointing Paralympic debut led to Neil losing his funding. After a challenging period, he realised that the only way to achieve his dreams was reinventing himself. He later joined British Cycling in 2009 and made a rapid progress. Later that year, he became a double world champion and a double world record holder. His ambition was realised in 2012 when Al he won gold at the London Paralympics. This led him to receiving his MBE, services to cycling the following year. A long career followed, culminating in 26 medals won at major championships, 19 of which are gold, and he's not done yet. In 2016, Neil set up LNF Coaching along with his wife, fellow Paralympic and world champion Laura, or Lara, should I say. They both passionately believe that there are tremendous possibilities when the world of sport and business combine. Neil works alongside high-performance teams from a variety of industries, sharing his insights from the sporting world so that they can find an edge that will take them to the next level. So welcome onto the show, Neil. Yeah, thank you very much. Quite a welcome there. Thank you. Well, the pleasure's all mine. So take us back to ultimately the Beijing 2008 Games. Ultimately, that's high of you making your first games. And I didn't realise we were both in the same team in that game as well. Yeah. To the ultimate, you deem it as a failure. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I'd be intrigued to kind of get your thoughts as well on those that first games. You know, um, for me, I, I didn't really know what to expect from the Paralympics. I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of coverage before Beijing, really. I mean, you got the odd highlights on TV, but... It was still a bit of, kind of a new thing. Um, so arriving in Beijing was just massively overwhelming, suddenly realizing the magnitude of it all. As you know, that moment you kind of enter the athlete's village um, and realize you've got people from all across the globe there, literally almost every country on earth, all with different disabilities. And it's just mind-blowing. Um, and, I, you know, I just fell in love with it straight away. And... You know that the village was quite special in itself, but then the venues as well were just just mind blowing. So I was competing at the Bird's Nest Stadium, which is a ninety thousand seater stadium, uh, used to running in front of a maybe a few hundred people. You know, at local league events around Scotland and occasionally down in England, and suddenly you're in this huge, amazing venue. So I absolutely fell in love with the Paralympics straight away. It was just just mind blowing. 
Um, for myself, in both my events, I finished ninth with a top eight making the final. So it was kind of frustrating to be that close to a Paralympic final. But I was quite happy myself because becoming a Paralympian, you know, I, I so nearly didn't make the team. I only just got on the team at the last minute and I knew what a, an amazing achievement that was. And no one could ever take that fact away from me that I was now a Paralympian. So, you know, I, I was so happy with that. And I was just so ready to to go on to the next games. Like we you know, already chat was going around that four years time, we're going to have this games in London our home games. And I thought, wow, you know, becoming a Paralympian was special, but imagine competing at home games, how many people get that opportunity. So that was suddenly my, my big target. And, um, you know, I decided I was going to commit fully to that four years. I'm just going to go for it. Got this one opportunity. Why not? And then two weeks after I got back, um, from Beijing, I got a phone call from my team manager at the time from UK athletics. And I kind of thought to chat through the, the plan for the, the up and coming year. But they said to me at that point, we don't think you've got the potential to make it to London and your contract's going to be terminated with immediate effect. And just like that, the dream was was over. Um, and I'd love to say it was one of those things where, you know, I instantly bounced back. But reality is it was almost like a grieving process of going through blaming other people initially. Like, why didn't they think I had the potential to make it why didn't they get more out of me um you know why couldn't they see what I was capable of and um yeah I went through that whole process and kind of entered a real low point for a few months where you know I was eating the wrong things I wasn't training I'd kind of given up and I started trying to apply for jobs and realized it's quite hard sometimes as a person with a disability to get employment as well you know I had a, a degree I was a Paralympian but I couldn't get a job so I ended up down the job center claiming benefits at the end of that year you know that was so big for me um, becoming a Paralympian falling in love with the games and then it ended down the job center so you know it's um, the real highs and lows that year so I, I guess I don't look back fondly on on the year itself but the actual experience at Beijing was incredible and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts when you went into the village for the first time as well if it was similar or not. I think when, with me, Neil, and you raised a good point, it was because I'd come from swimming before going into rowing. So I'd made my transition um, probably slightly earlier than you from, oh, that going across. In 2005, being dropped from British swimming uh, and that being my first year at university. So that was a story in itself that told money a time that I thought come January, coming back in, 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 in after the Christmas period, I'll be a, a regular student again. And I think with, with how we've got sports set up here in Wales, they like to reinvent yourself. You've obviously know Jody quite well, Jody Cundy. He transferred from swimming, uh, to cycling and being, okay, an English athlete based in Wales. He got the support from Disability Support Wales to make that transition and ultimately, He's gone from on leaps and bounds from, you know, with designer prosthetics to obviously having the support of Osa now. Mm-hmm. So for me, coming to back, back to answer your question, um, it was my then swimming coach uh, based in Swansea. It was the no, there's no longer a program down there because uh, they're restructuring. But he kind of said to me, 
first time swimming swimming in China, you've now fulfilled the potential that I saw that you had in swimming. Okay, did I believe in that myself? Probably not, but to get that reassuring backing from somebody that you were very close with, uh, other than your family, it gives you an enormous sense of belief. It's like, okay, now I can believe in that myself and push forward towards London. So for me, I think I was very much this boy in a a candy store or a sweet shop with Beijing. It was, I, I wanted to have the pinnacle of achieving that goal. I've obviously in a big program like yourself with, with you being in athletics and me being in rowing. It was also the first for the sport. So I think the pressures within the program were probably enormous because you look at the pedigree on the Olympic side, they deliver time in and time out. Ultimately, you can't say the same with, uh, uh, UK athletics with the Olympics all the time, bar probably up until probably London and, and Rio. They were, oh, well, I'll say this because it's true, uh, mediocre at best. A lot of times it was, yeah, they, I think that's they, fair. Over, they, they, you could say some of the, they're, especially the sprinters, once they've made the program, I've, I've achieved. Whereas you look at their counterparts of, you know, either the Americans or Jamaicans, that's not good enough. I want to win a medal. Uh, I think the new crop of the new generation, I would say that's definitely the case. On the Paralympic side, you, you harken back to the memories of Channel 4's uh, slogan of advertising on the billboards. Thank you for, for the warm-up event. But ultimately, we took that as as comical. But there's some fact to it. It's, it's like, I can't remember how many medals Team GB got. I think we managed to eclipse that in the first couple of days of the Paralympics. So we, we, well, we don't compare ourselves to, to the Olympians because ultimately we know we're going to beat them. So it's like, yeah, thank you for a target. We'll surpass that. But I think for me, it is a surreal experience to get to share probably this conversation with you because you talking about the village, it brings back memories of, well, Chinese gardens, uh, of, of being, you could, well, you can't get lost, but you could if you, if you weren't paying attention. Whereas London, it was more using probably somebody's song, Concrete Jungle, which just happened to be in, in the Olympic Park. So it's, I think for a British athlete, it's very just difficult to describe a village, but I think China is a little bit easier because they wanted to take elements of what was Chinese and make it unique. Whereas London could probably be anywhere, if I'm honest. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was that village life that really um, appealed to me though. Just that the diversity of it, the people there sort of really sold it to me. So I think that's why I really fell in love with the, the games. I mean, the magnitude of it, the hype was great, but just the people watching in a, a village is just unreal, you know, just seeing how different people from around the world deal with different disabilities. And that's something I've always loved, that special moment every four years you get to be part of and, and just um, really celebrate like just how how talented all these people here are and, and how varied they are, but they all come together at this pinnacle of an event. So, so yeah, I guess Beijing was kind of the, 
it kind of popped pop the cork almost to me that world that I just hadn't seen before and suddenly I was in it and you know instantly fell in love and and I guess that's um that's why I kind of dedicated the rest of my my life towards getting back there so even after that lower there was always that desire to to get back and do it again like you say and, and get to to London and that home games um which which obviously we both got to be again teammates at as well which is incredible so Neil, talk about me. Talk to me about the transition from going from UK Athletics to British Cycling. Is it a chance meeting that you've kind of fell into cycling? Yeah. So, as I say, I went through this low spell, this um, kind of period of depression where I wasn't really doing much at all. But I kind of worked through that grieving process, and one morning, I guess I just woke up and suddenly that kind of spark in the back of my head of London 2012 just clicked in and I thought you know I can't really bear to sit back and watch this happen on tv I need to be part of it you know somehow I need to be there so I got up and I I researched every sport for people with a visual impairment that was going to be at London Um, I kind of figured that my athletics career probably was done by this point I could go back but it's so rare that a sport goes back to someone they've removed from the funding process and I kind of felt like I'd reached my my best anyway so I decided I was going to try every single sport until I found one I might be good enough at that I might have a chance of making it on the start line or field of play whatever sport it might be just to make it to London and I've always been a, a lifelong fan of cycling and they had an incredible games in Beijing both Olympic and Paralympic winning almost every event going you know it was that was a real breakthrough year for British cycling. So they were very much in the, the press as well, and I was very much aware of them, but I didn't feel particularly worthy as a an athlete at that point. So I didn't get in touch with the paracycling team, you know, to say like, oh, you know, I've, I've been to a Paralympic Games in another sport. Can I come and try? Instead, I thought I need to find out first if I enjoy it. So I, I called up my closest indoor velodrome which happened to be in Manchester I was living in Aberdeen at the time so it was like seven and a half hour train journey away and I just asked like how do you how do you get a shot on the velodrome and they said we've got these things called taster sessions where anyone from the public can come along give it a try and and I signed up for a session the next week and I got off the phone and realized I hadn't told them I couldn't see very well and I thought maybe I should let them know and I thought no they're they're probably not going to let me try so I just kept quiet went down did the taster session got on the bike myself and I kept well away from everyone else you know just to make sure because I can't always see people coming from the sides and things but I got my my higher bike and wobbled my way around the track and I just fell in love with the sport suddenly that that freedom that I'd loved in athletics so much that freedom of just going as fast as you can that simplicity of it and in cycling obviously you can go that much quicker so I you know I just loved it um and I got off the bike at the end of that session and kind of thought that was it best head home now and I was wearing a bag with Beijing on the back the kit bag we got at the games I was still living on old glories and a guy spotted the bag and kind of called me over got asking about the games and he, he explained to me he'd been to the Sydney Olympics where he'd won a silver medal and I thought wow that's, that's amazing he was just about to warm up for a GB session and he told me he just switched over from the Olympic team to the Paralympic team and he's now what's known as a, a tandem pilot someone who rides on the front of a tandem bike and he was looking for someone a visually impaired athlete to get on the back of the bike with him 
and did I happen to know anyone? And I took all of about half a second to say, yeah, I might be your guy, you know, let's do it. And we just kept in touch from there. He kind of started setting me some training. He got me in touch with the right people and ultimately got me a trial, which, you know, um, this is over a period of a few months, got me that opportunity and I kind of snapped their hand off, went for it as big as I could and they saw some promise in me. And I decided to commit at that point to, um, it's a centralized program, British Cycling. So everyone's based in Manchester at the velodrome there. And I decided that they saw potential in me. Um, They weren't offering me much in the way of funding at that point. The development squad is very new, but I thought I need to be there if I'm going to have any chance. So with my very limited savings, I I moved to Manchester and just committed all in quite early in 2009. And my progression was just just immense I guess um some of that you know the the training I've been doing over the years as an athlete it really helped me and it was just a case of making that transition to the new sport which was hard and it was a struggle but it meant that I progressed pretty rapidly and I had an opportunity later that year in 2009 um, to compete at the world championships after going through a few more selection processes this door kind of opened itself up to me one after the other and I was still improving week on week as we went to those champs. Um, didn't really know what to expect, but I ended up on the bike piloted by a, a great rider. And, you know, I, I said, I didn't know what to expect. I crossed the finish line of my first event, which is the one kilometer time trial. It's four laps of the velodrome. And I, I felt terrible because you always feel awful at the end of the event. It's like 60 seconds, full out effort. Um, and it's a bit like running 400 meters in athletics, that kind of real lactic event, a bit longer than that. And so you always feel awful when you cross the finish line. So I, I crossed the finish line thinking, oh, that wasn't, wasn't great. And then I heard the announcer say, new world record. And my mind was just blown at that point. That, you know, where did that come from? Um, and yeah, so that was November 2009, just over a year after losing my funding from athletics. And I became a world champion and world record holder in cycling. And it was just this astronomical shift. Um, and it, obviously at that point, then it was no longer just thinking about making the team for London. It was like, wow, I've got the chance here to be a contender. And um, yeah, it, it was, it all happened way quicker than I could ever have imagined, but just showed me that kind of putting yourself in the right place at the right time can lead to things that, you know, you just never thought possible. So, you know, is that, it's now at the point where I look back and think I'm actually really grateful I lost my funding at the point I did as opposed to being so annoyed as I was and bitter about it and I think that's the best thing that could ever happen to me. Let me ask you this then uh, Neil do you think when you were on the doll and unemployed did you ever think you'd become a full-time world 14 time world champion? Not in a million years I mean at that point my thought really was like at that point I assumed I was going to become one of those people who was just going to have to live off benefits you know um disability allowance job seekers allowance and I you know not that I've got a problem with that by any means but it's not really what I had imagined over my life particularly after becoming a Paralympian you know I thought I was getting somewhere finally in 2008 and then suddenly it was all taken away and yeah I just I didn't see much of a future at all um and it was just a case of I'm just going to have to go through the motions of getting benefits, maybe sitting at home playing 
computer games on my own and maybe see my friends when they come home from work in an evening or something but no not not in a million years it's just um just mind-blowing just to found another sport i would have been happy with let alone ever winning a medal at a major championships i never got that close to that in athletics so i didn't think i could do it in another sport by any means so hear you talking neil do you do you think now that you're obviously in coaching yourself you were the words that you obviously said to yourself out loud i'm just going for the motions how does that sit with you right now though yeah i mean obviously that it's it's very easy i do realize having been in that situation where you're in that mindset of things not going your way to just do that and think ah just just take the boxes and go with it and when you don't have that kind of light at the end of the tunnel or big drive or focus. And I think that was the key thing back then when I look that that spark of London 2012, as I say, was, was in there somewhere, but for a while I couldn't find it. And then that day when it did kind of just find its way to the front again, that changed everything. It kind of made me realize the importance of having some kind of target or goal in mind always to, to keep you going because Otherwise, it's just impossible. Even the most motivated people, I kind of say this, you know, motivation comes and goes for all of us, even the most motivated people around their days when they just don't fancy it. But if you've got that big target in mind where you know that you you have to perform every single day if you're going to get there, it's amazing the difference it makes. And I think that's the key thing I learned then was you need to have something. Otherwise, you will just go through the motions because there's no reason to push yourself if you've got nothing to aim for so I think this ties nicely with my next question to you Neil then in your book you outline five key areas you consider vital for elite performance in whatever you do can you explain what those five key areas are yeah so it's it's just um, in recent years I've looked back on my sporting career and realized the areas that when I moved to cycling that I, I made that conscientious change in the way I approached sport that I was going all in and looking back, I realized that these five areas that really helped me to progress uh, in the way I did, and not just that rapid progression straight away, but just to keep developing year on year and pushing the sport forward. And these are things that aren't uh, physical attributes. So it's that kind of mentality, the mental side that can be applied to anything really. So the first one, I mean, we've already kind of spoken about there is drive and that having a, a target, that finding your why, if you like something that you really want to want to aim for and realistically then nothing none of the rest of it will work if you don't have that that big target and we've kind of mentioned that and then the next steps around performance and that's kind of the nuts and bolts day to day about how you go about going from where you are now to that target you've got in mind so setting out that game plan kind of strategizing your way for success and this is something we do as uh, Olympians and Paralympians, you know, you've got that four-year cycle naturally that keeps happening where you've got that game day or race day every four years and you set your plan around that day and kind of work backwards essentially. So what do I need to do tomorrow in order to be challenging for a gold medal in three and a half years' time? You know, it's, it's kind of laying out the plan, if you like. Then it's around the team, and, and you'll know this well, that you know, as an athlete, you're it's never just you doing you're doing the training sessions but there's a group of people around you whether it's a team sport like I know you've been involved in team sports yourself or whether even it's as an individual and you've got those experts who are you know working on your nutrition or your your training your strength and conditioning physios all those kind of things so having that network around you that's going to support you and help you get the most out of yourself 
And then the crucial ones around mindset, um, as I touched on already, that idea that motivation comes and goes, whereas I think the most successful people in, in sport and in business, whatever it is, have that ability to perform every day, regardless of where they're at. So it's finding what works for you, whether it's kind of talking to yourself, um, reminding yourself of your targets or overcoming those sort of limiting beliefs that we all have, those negative thoughts, but finding a way that regardless of how you're actually feeling when you go in for your training session, that you're going to be the best you can be. And that's something that's so important at, at the top level. And then finally, being able to perform on the biggest stage. I mean, like say <laughs> competing in London, you know what it's like when that you got the crowds around and the TV cameras are all there. And suddenly as Paralympians, we were almost superstars for a while there. And how do you perform on those days when suddenly the pressure is huge? Um, and again, that applies to anything, whether you're doing a presentation on stage or in a business meeting, trying to finish a sale off with a client or something, or whether it's in sport on that big day you're competing, it's how you get the most out of yourself under pressure. And it's those sort of five areas, I think, if you can nail them five, you're probably going to do pretty well for yourself, I would have thought. And do you think because you came into a program that, in a sense, invented that mindset kind of mentality within sport, you know, the 1% uh, marginal gains uh, that Dale Braysford is synonymous with Team Sky, ultimately Team Ineos now, uh, and British Cycling, do you think because that program was at the forefront of embracing sports psychology and looking at, well, if this is the difference between winning and losing, we might as well look at that as well as, you know, the, 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 you talked about Beijing being the most successful with uh, games for the Olympics and the Paralympics of they put more towards technology innovation, but I think with them kind of reinventing the wheel, so to speak, do you think that was kind of, for you, it was a massive turning point to going from where UK athletics are, whereas I think within sports psychology, we probably put cycling as head up and shoulders above every other program, and especially in Great Britain. Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting, actually. So I guess I was involved in UK athletics at a point. So after Beijing, there was a big shift in the way UK athletics worked as well. Um, I was part of the clear out, I guess, where everything was, all the old was knocked out and the new came in. And I'm sure they've, they've made vast improvements. But when I was part of the team, it, it really wasn't something I, I don't even think we had access to a psychologist as far as I'm aware. I was certainly never made aware. I had worked with one or two up with my local area based up in Aberdeen who were kind of a multi-sport thing that I was able to access, which was kind of my first um, first view of sports psychology, really. And it seemed like it was quite a new thing then, but a few sports were starting to invest in it. And I worked with someone just a few times before I went out to Beijing just to kind of make sure that I wouldn't be overawed by the situation. And I found that really interesting. But yeah, the shift to British cycling was quite eye-opening. Um, Firstly, that centralized program where all the athletes were training together, I wasn't used to at all. So, you know, I walked in day one. Um, I was really early because I was so excited. And so I was first in. And then, you know, coming up the stairs was Chris Hoy, who just won gold, and uh, Vicky Bendelin, who just won gold, Jason Kenny, another Olympic gold medalist. And, you know, there was the Paralympic gold medalist as well. And it was just surrounded by all these people suddenly. And it was really interesting to see the way they worked. and you know many of them were 
accessing psychologists. Certainly I've heard Chris speak about in the run-up to, to Athens and Beijing. He did a lot of work with Steve Peters at the time, who was at British Cycling. And yeah, it was just really interesting to hear people be open about it, something that was almost never spoken about in sport, I don't think, much prior to that. But it was, seemed to be something that was very much considered. And um, yeah, it made me aware that I needed to to start putting those processes in place. And some of them I already did. I think we do naturally as sports people anyway. So that idea of visualizing your event, I think a lot of us do that. It's maybe considered daydreaming sometimes when you're picturing your, your sport and you just want to be out there playing, you know. But it's something I always did. So sitting in school, I was always picturing myself running down the track. And I guess I just learned those skills naturally. But suddenly I realized those were things people were teaching as well. So you know, I almost had a head start. I was doing it myself, but that idea of it being more structured and visualizing my event before I get there. And the thought that you can actually run your event thousands of times in your head before you actually ever do it was so interesting because I hadn't realized, but anytime I was picturing my race, my heart rate was accelerating to about the point it would if I was actually racing. So my body was being tricked into the fact that I'm actually there, even though I'm just picturing it in my head. It just shows how powerful it is. So, yeah, it was it was really good to have that. It just be open and out there, and people talking about it. And it still um it still was quite new in the British cycling, even. But you know, the top people were doing it. Chris was doing it, so therefore everyone else thinks well. If he is good enough for Chris Hoy, then it's good enough for me. Uh, and that was quite exciting. And it, you know, the results do speak for themselves at British cycling. It's um it's been strong. I don't think they've always done it uh perfectly by any means and obviously there have been things in the press over the years where we've not been that perfect team but performance has always been at the forefront and, and certainly that idea of of creating the mindset is, is has been strong um but yeah i mean it is a case of finding your own way with these things as well it the way british cycling did it doesn't work for everyone and i their method worked up to a point with me but they were quite focused on going through the motions of your event, taking um, taking emotion out of it. But I find bringing emotion into my performance is actually really powerful if you can do it in a, in a controlled manner. So I guess I've sort of tweaked the British cycling method, but having that area to, to kind of work from has really helped. So I could do what was kind of being taught and then find what worked for me as well, which I guess I never had that opportunity in athletics. In your opinion, in your opinion, Neil, then and I hear you speaking there. Why did you think? And this is obviously your opinion. Why did they want to take emotion out of it? Because ultimately, it could be used, like you said, from a good from a good place as well as a, a bad one. Yeah, I think for some athletes, it can work. If you're someone that gets very overawed, and I guess there was a lot of pressure on the likes of Chris and, and Vicky, where they were the nation's darlings almost, you know, going into these events. So perhaps it was to take away some of that pressure. Um, so, you know, they were doing reps and reps and training. They knew exactly what they needed to do. And cycling, certain events in cycling, so the time-based ones are very controllable, where you can almost predict what time the athlete's going to do before they go up on track if you've monitored their training and their progression throughout the years. So they, I guess they knew they were at a point where all things being equal, they'd probably win. And it was just a case of putting that performance out there again. But I, I am a big believer that 
the emotional part of the brain is by far the most powerful. So it can overawe you and take over and destroy your performance. Of course it can. But if you have a way of controlling this immensely powerful part of your brain, then why not use it to your advantage? You know, like, so for me, I, I went through some of those events where I went in and it was just a case of, right, just do what you've done in training and just kind of shut the world off. And I did okay. But those events where I kind of got really psyched up for it, like, come on, this is the big race. You've just seen someone else do an incredible time. And at that point it could be make or break. But for me, it was like, right, they've done that time. I need to go big. I need to go hard here. And getting so fired up, like I just find my performance escalates so much. And I think that's what the best people do. I mean, it's no secret that most world records are broken, that major championships in, in so many sports. And it's because the pressure's on, the emotion is there. And that big day, if you can harness that, then to your advantage, then it's incredible. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I could see in some situations why you might want to take emotion out of it, but I'm not a believer in that approach at all. And if we rewind backwards a little bit as well, you talked about obviously turning up early for your first session. Were you a bit starstruck then? Yeah. Um, so in athletics, I had I had trained alongside a few of the Olympic team in the athletic squad, but it was quite few and far between. And much of my training was done in Aberdeen on my own. Um, there were no other full-time athletes around. But yeah, there's something about a new sport. So I felt pretty uncomfortable and out of place anyway. Like, I, I don't know if I really belong in a, a velodrome environment suddenly. And then, as I say, just in walks champion after champion. And you think, well, I, I've barely ever ridden a bike, let alone a tandem. And, you know, I'm training alongside the best in the world. Um, and yeah, it was it was very overawing. But to be fair to all of those people, particularly Chris, um, came straight over to me, shook my hand, welcomed me in. And he's like, wow, this is, you know, I, these are just down to earth people. And I knew they would be, but you, you always just envisage these people as almost being like Greek gods who are untouchable and, you know, why are they going to talk to me? But yeah, they were so helpful and they were just calm me straight away and were passing on advice, um, which you know, I didn't even ask for, but they were there to kind of pass it to me. And that was just incredible. So I was put to ease very quickly, but I definitely felt out of place for a while. And even up until winning that first world title and, you know, suddenly you're, you're a world champion, you feel a bit more deserving. But even after that first world title, I remember getting a phone call from my manager at British Cycling. Um, kind of reflecting that call from my manager at UK Athletics. And they were saying, oh, you're, you're on podium level funding, the top level funding. You know, you won two world titles. And I kind of questioned, like, oh, I, are you sure? Like, I, I know I won two, won two world titles, but are you sure I'm on A funding? That's That seems a bit a bit much. I just couldn't believe it at that point still that I should be on the top level of funding and something. So um, I guess it took me a while to, to have that belief that I deserve to, to be there alongside these incredible people. But, but yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting experience that first day. I was definitely nervous. And to hear you speak, it's quite humbling as well, Neil, because ultimately you become, you're coming very transparent and vulnerable. And I appreciate that. What I'd like to ask you then is, do you think the Paralympics program more specifically kind of allows the athlete to reinvent themselves? Because you've got obviously Jody Cundy coming from swimming, Sarah Story coming from swimming, Mark Colburn coming from a paragliding accident, uh, and yourself coming from UK Athletics. Do you think it's they've harnessed the potential of, of ultimately, I've named 
for five individuals mm. and giving them an opportunity and then a second chance. Yeah, it's really interesting in parasport. I mean, I guess years ago we didn't have the depth through many of the events. So switching sports was, was quite easy in the early days, I think. Um, but obviously things have progressed now to a point where you know, those sports that have been in the Paralympics for many years now are at such a level where it's, it's on, it is on a par, at par, running parallel to the Olympics, where to be the best in the world, you have to be absolutely the best in the world. Um, so it's making it a lot harder. There is a lot more depth now, but it is interesting how many have switched sports. I think perhaps on the Olympic side, it just, I don't know if there's always that belief and so people aren't willing to commit and try a new sport. Whereas I mean, even when I switched sports, I remember going into a meeting with um, my local Institute of Sport at the time. This is after I lost my athletics funding. And they said, we will fund you for another six months because my contract was slightly different to the UK athletics one. And I said, at that point, I'm interested in trying cycling. And they said, well, we're happy to support you in athletics, but we're not going to support you in a completely different sport if you're making this commitment, you're doing it on your own. And I had to, in that meeting, say, well, this just feels right. I need to go for it. And I, I walked away from any support at that point. So even then, it, it wasn't the case that I think it was open to everyone. Um, you mentioned earlier about Disability Sport Wales, and they've definitely been pioneers from what I can see in getting people to try different sports when they've maybe not quite made it somewhere. And it's been incredible to see the results there. I think there are other parts of the UK, UK could learn from that for sure. Because um, when you're trained as an athlete, you're in incredible shape and you're probably competitive in quite a few different sports. And it's just that fine tuning of learning the skills needed or, or whatever it might be um, that does take a bit of time, but it is very achievable. So I do think it's something we seem to do well. And I, as I said, I do think down in Wales, you, you guys have been absolute pioneers in that front. And it seems to be developing more across the nation now. I mean, most of the names you mentioned there were through the Welsh system as well, which is really interesting to see. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's out there. And we, I mean, we even have athletes now, of course, who are doing multiple sports at games, which is almost unheard of. It, it's very rarely happened at an Olympics, but very occasionally has but now you get people multi-meddling in two different sports so it is very doable um it's just a case of that belief from the support team to actually allow people to do it and give them just that little bit of time to find themselves in a new sport but yeah if you're if you're a top athlete you're probably a top athlete in more than one event and it's great that you bring that to the table Neil because when I, I'd retired by this point as I think you'll mention I think from an athlete looking from the outside in, I would have thought there would have been conflict of interest with UK athletics and British cycling. One would want to be, well, you can't do both. You have to pick. So ultimately to see them come to some kind of arrangement or agreement, I was very, I was dumbfounded. That's like, well, normally you would want to be, you know, the, the alpha male in this position. Uh, and you want to, to impose your will over the other. Ultimately, I don't know if the, the decision was taken by the athlete to ultimately, well, this is what I want to do. You either support me or you don't. And ultimately, yeah. I, neither want to lose out. Yeah, it's interesting. I do think there is a, an element of, as an athlete, if you're going to do multiple sports, you're going to have to be pretty firm and there's going to be some tough 
tough discussions around how you you go about the training for two events and it's definitely not easy um and you're right it's um especially when you come into a major championships the if you're competing in one sport in multiple events generally the timetable suits that you'll be able to to do two events but when you're in different sports the likelihood of clashing is such a big problem as well so you know you could train for years in two sports and then find out you're meant to be competing at the same point in time at the games in two completely different venues so it is a, a really interesting topic and you know there's a reason not many people do it for sure i mean for me personally one sport at a time is quite enough you know you're all in and that, that's fine but fair play to those that, that do it. I think it takes some serious time management skills for one. So so talk to me about this one then, and this is going to be a difficult question for you, Neil. Which was the more iconic venue to compete at? The Velodrome in London or the Bird's Nest in Beijing? That, that is a great question. Um, you know, the Bird's Nest is, is stupendous. Um, did you get to to the ceremonies yourself? To uh, no, I I was on both occasions. Uh, ultimately, well, obviously the team had the discussion about this, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen a number of athletes resharing their 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 times of of the most re- obviously London uh, for some athletes thinking, oh, I've not got the opportunity to. I've done both closing ceremonies, and and and, yeah. and I could what you said about well, I like where I'm stood at in China or well, I want to be in the same position in four years time and it wouldn't have been at home I'm sure but not no I had to watch it on, on the on the television in the village um obviously I'm trying to think the the, the bearings of where the village is with relation to the birds it's further away than obviously mm. the case with uh, our apartment block in London overlooking obviously the the Olympic Park so that was a very different thing. But no, I didn't, to answer your question, I didn't get to experience obviously the highs of, of something like that. Yeah, it was, um, so I, the way athletics worked, I did actually get to do the opening ceremony in, in Beijing as well. So my first really, well, my first experience of the, the Bird's Nest Stadium, our training venue was the warm-up track just outside it. So I get, you kind of had it in the backdrop as you were, doing your training sessions and the day run, running up to it, which was pretty cool for a start. But, I mean, it's an absolutely stupendous stadium. And as as a design, as a look, I just love the bird's nest. So, I mean, I've got a painting of it up on my, my wall in my living room. And, you know, it's just, just beautiful. And I have great memories. My one real issue is when I raced in it, both my heats were in the morning. And it wasn't full at that point it felt quite empty. It was probably still around 30,000 people though. You know, it's just so, so enormous that 30,000 people almost got lost in there. But I did go along when it was full to watch the finals and it was unbelievable. But the velodrome in London, I mean, doesn't hold anywhere near as many people. It's around 6,000, I think, uh, maybe just over. So, you know, a velodrome is, is smaller. It's just a 200 meter track as opposed to the 400 athletics track. And, but the amazing thing about the design with the stadium in London, the velodrome, which is known as the Pringle, is because it resembles a, a Pringle crisp with the sort of curved up edges. And this is where all the, the fans are kind of up in the, the curves. But that shape of the roof sort of channeled the noise right down onto the track where you were racing. So, I mean, you can imagine, I'm sure everyone can imagine what the, the crowd noise was like when a home athlete got up there that, you know, everyone erupted at that point. And then this noise just kind of hit you 
Um, and I've never, never felt or heard anything like that in my life. So I think the experience of being in the London Stadium was so much greater as an outright venue for, for beauty than the bird's nest is special. And, you know, I've got a lot of love for it, but yeah, that experience in London of just being hit by the noise. I mean, I was going up to my race, um, so psyched up to compete, you know, in that kind of, this is a war kind of fight mentality. And then my name's announced, there's this huge roar and you almost try and tune it out. And then realize you just can't. And I end up kind of grinning because it's just so bizarre to have so many people like, there for you um cheering you on so that that was special and i'll never forget and you know i was i was lucky enough not just to make it to london but to to cross the finish line and and get a gold and in the one kilometer time trial and um that feeling of standing on the podium and again having that full crowd roaring as you step up and it's just just magical so i wish you could kind of bottle that moment up i, I still remember it quite vividly i hope I'll, I'll never forget that feeling because that was unique and obviously you being a home country athlete as well neil and, and having the opportunity to not just represent scotland at one commonwealth games but two does glasgow come close to london 2012 yeah i mean the venue isn't as big so it was never as loud as london and glasgow but as i'm sure you can imagine that uh, a home Scottish crowd is pretty boisterous um, and they were they were wild and that was my first time actually ever competing for Scotland which is the interesting thing with the Commonwealth Games that you know Paralympics obviously you're you're part of GB and I've, I've never really had that chance to compete for Scotland so it was something really different and you know almost having your teammates as rivals suddenly people you train with every day you look across and they're not sitting next to you anymore. They're sat over the other side of the velodrome. That's where their team base is. It's really, really quite weird, but it's good fun. And then obviously being in a home, you know, uh, my home country to race there, my first time for Scotland being in Glasgow was just, again, so lucky to have that opportunity. And as far as the the events go, um, again, we came away with, with two gold medals there, but, we probably weren't the favourites, I don't think, to win either event. Although the uh, the Scottish press said otherwise, there was a lot of pressure on us. They expect us to win. But the bike from Australia were so good at those games. And I don't know how they didn't beat us in the, the one kilometre time trial. We won that by, I think, two hundredths of a second. And then in the sprint match, which is where you've got two bikes on the track together, head to head, we met the Australians in the final. And it's the best of three and they won the first race really comfortably. So they just had to win one more time to take the gold. And, you know, it just seemed like it was a done deal, really. But from nowhere, we we won that second um, by like a couple of inches, the second race to take it to a decider. And obviously that moment when we just came past the Australians to cross the finish line and level up, the crowd was just incredible again. And then we actually won the decider as well to take gold in the sprint. And um at that point, you know, the whole place was just bouncing. And being very cliche as the Scots are, we had the, the proclaimers blaring through the sound system, everyone singing along. I was singing along on the bike, and it was just, it was, whereas London was just this incredible emotional thing, like Glasgow was just crazy and fun and, you know, unforgettable from, from the point of view of those wins when, you, when you're not favourite or as well or so special, like, you don't expect to win yourself and you find a way to do it. That was just 
just mind-blowing so I think that's probably my my favorite just from a, a sheer fun point of view that it was just uh, just crazy and obviously having the opportunity of representing Scotland twice Neil do you think this is something that the Commonwealth Games ultimately some of it is out of their power because of, of, of money and ultimately the Olympics and Paralympics is, is, is a commercial entity in themselves do you think more disabled athletes, not necessarily Paralympians, but disabled athletes themselves get an opportunity if, for whatever reason, they don't quite hit the heights of becoming a Paralympian, they get at least an opportunity to represent their home country? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the really interesting thing with the Commonwealth Games is that it's a a combined with able-bodied. So while you've got the able-bodied events on, the para-sport events are going on too. But the problem is it's only a very limited program of para events. And I'm hopeful that something that will grow um, to be a bit more on par with the amount of events for the able-bodied. I've been very lucky that tandem racing has been included the past couple of games, so I got that chance. But there are some seriously talented uh, athletes with disability who have never had an event at the Commonwealth Games, which is really sad. And you're right. I mean, often the Commonwealth Games is used by the home nations to kind of blood younger potential athletes or people that didn't quite make it. And along with the big superstars as well, but because we're those home nations, there are much much more spots for people, a lot more opportunities. So, you know, it's been often in championships, it's really made someone. I mean, I remember Jess Sennis back in Melbourne, I think. Um, that was where she really burst onto the scene and look, look where she ended up. You know, that Commonwealth game experience can be really, really special. So, yeah, I'd love to see more disability sport in there. And like you say, more people having that opportunity because, you know, we have so few events in front of crowds as well in parasport. Things are getting better, of course, but most of our world championships in cycling are still in front of almost no crowd whatsoever because there's never the budget to advertise and that's the reality of, of para sport for most of us so getting the opportunity to actually compete in front of a crowd you know generally it's once every four years for the absolute elite and that's it whereas the commonwealth games is another opportunity um and it, it's a proper games experience where you all come together as different sports as well and you know that how incredible that is to kind of meet up with people that you otherwise just would never meet who are going through the same journey as you, but in a completely different sport. And yeah, it's just such, such a great experience. So I am, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate for getting more para sport out there, get it on, get on TV as well. I mean, people seem to love watching it when it's there. So why not make the most of it? Do you think also, Neil, that it kind of brings a tribal aspect to it and and you'll get what I'm coming from with this because ultimately the press makes a big deal about the English athlete most of the time. This is where probably the resentment comes from, from being Scots, the Welsh and the Northern Irish to some extent. Do you think because with Glasgow being your first games, does it kind of sit well with you? It's my one true opportunity to showcase my sporting excellence to probably the bread and butter people that support me throughout most of my career yeah yeah I know exactly what you mean like and that's been I guess after I kind of achieved in London myself that was sort of achieving for myself winning that gold whereas then it became 
that showcasing the sport and I've consciously been trying to push the sport on as well over the years to get to, to levels where you can see that we're on a par, if not better than able-bodied guys. But as I say, doing that at a world championships where you have a maybe 10, 15 people in a crowd or something seeing this incredible performance where you've put your heart and soul into it um, doesn't mean that much because no one really sees it. But something like the Commonwealth Games where, again, yeah, as a home athlete, people were watching. It was in amongst the able-bodied events on the velodrome. So we got on TV, you know, we're on, we're on the BBC um, suddenly. And because it's exciting racing, it's exciting sport, they want to show it. Um, they wouldn't normally come to our world championships or anything, but suddenly they're there, they're set up, and they see a great event taking place. I mean, our sprint, as I say, in the tandem at the Commonwealth Games was this incredible battle where we were so close and it was thrilling watching. And the amount of people that I've spoken to afterwards that said, that was our, our favorite bit of the cycling calendar was the tandem sprint. It was so good to watch. And these are people that had never seen it before. So it was this opportunity to showcase what Parasport is capable of. And we had that in London. We get that at the Paralympics every year, but uh, every four years. But, um, well, since London, not really before that. But, yeah, it's so few and far between. So, like you say, having that, that home crowd, um, I think, was, was really it's a great platform and there were lots of uh para sports that were very much in the limelight and para athletes who who did well both from scotland and and england wales and everything so it was it was great to see um yeah i'm, I'm pretty proud of the way we we put it in the spotlight and there was a part of me kind of thought that maybe things would progress quicker from that but i feel like we're we kind of got a bit stuck since um since the rio games there's not been that much coverage of, of disability sport really bar again a bit at the Gold Coast and the Commonwealth Games it's um it's pretty rare we get to see it on our, our TVs or anything um so there's still work to be done for sure and I think the world champions that you're mentioning is the one in Appledome where they didn't even do a live stream isn't it the 2019 one and I think Jody yeah. brought it to the fore and that's where I've seen do you think it's uh, missed opportunity that they've not even tried to obviously live stream it with resources that we've got available to, with us now with social media. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, going back 10 years, maybe it was quite difficult to to kind of get a feed out there and, and get things uh, out to the world, but it is so basic now. I mean, anyone can sit from their living room and, and beam out to the world. It's it's not hard. We we're all capable of it. There's there's apps out there and it's it's simple. So the fact that we can't get a world championships out there just done on a stream to the to even our friends and family to see who couldn't make the journey out there is, is pretty sad. To the point where you almost think, well, could I go along and just sit my phone on the side of the track somewhere and, and you know stick on a, a Facebook live or something and some people have done that from the stands, you know, that's what it's come to at times. So it is a shame and, you know, you'll go some places and it'll be great. I mean, um, there was a, a Road World Cup last year in Canada, which isn't, isn't, it's like the level below World Championships, but they were putting out live feeds where they had motorbike cameras on the road. They had commentators, they had the full works and it worked great. And if they can do it at a World Cup, then why can't we do it at World Championships? I think it's just, um, I think it's just sometimes there's still that mindset that people maybe don't want to 
to watch disability sport but i think we've proved time and time again when it's been on there that the, the numbers watching it have been huge um so you know I, I think the sponsorship probably is there if you go looking for it it's just people making that commitment to make the effort and um yeah i mean i guess i guess we all need to as as para athletes maybe help fight the fight and encourage them to do it because uh yeah i mean there's some incredible athletes that the world's never seen and it's such a shame you know there's there's so much great sport out there and during this past uh past while where sport had to be shut down for for a summer in 2020 then we've all appreciated how much we, we love to watch it and yeah para sports out there so why not do you think it's very much a smack in the face from going from the heights of probably if you put london on a pedestal of putting showcasing Paralympics on par with the Olympics, which I think it was, uh, looking back on it, to to what you're talking about, that they presume that people won't want to tune in because it's disability. Do you think it's what's wrong with society? Yeah, I can't even really put my finger on why it happens, but I just get, I think the funding's often not there in in para-sport for a start. So, I mean, I'm well aware that the Olympic programs get a lot more funding than the Paralympic programs do. So even at British Cycling, I know our the Paralympic squad have put on events in the past, international events, um, which are incredibly high caliber. Like we'll get most of the best athletes in the world, but then there'll be no budget to actually even let anyone know that the event's taking place. So inevitably no one shows up. So what happens then is we, we look at it and say, oh, well, this event took place and no one bought any tickets. And then just that kind of rolls on that we assume, oh, well, nobody obviously wants to come. And we forget that actually no one knew it was on, so how could they come? And all it would really take is someone to to do a little bit of advertising. And again, that doesn't need to be big money these days with the way social media works. We just need to get the message out there. So, yeah, I find it... I can't put my finger on it, but there just seems to be a missing link somewhere where we're not letting the public know and letting them make their own decision if they want to come or not. If they don't, fine. <laughs> you know, if we advertise and no one comes along, then fair enough. We'll hold our hands up and say, all right, no one wants to see us. That's fine. We'll just crack on and do our thing. But when you've seen the highs of, of London, of Rio, um, you see crowds do turn up and want to be part of it and you realize, well, there must be something good going on here. People obviously do want to see it, so why can't we showcase it? So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is always a, a constant disappointment. Um, I'll go to a World Championships. If there's five people in the crowd, I'll still commit to try and win it, but it feels a lot more special when you actually have an atmosphere in a venue, so I'm all for it. Um, and, yeah, I'll do my part to try and help people come along and, and share the word if I can, but, um, but yeah, we need to do more. Obviously, you and I could probably talk for hours uh, going backwards and forwards, um, and I won't make an assumption that people wouldn't listen to it. But ultimately, and this is my penultimate question for you for this episode, and I obviously very much would like uh, you're willing to come back for another future episode. Mm -hmm. If you got to sit down with any athlete, dead or alive, who would that be and why? Uh, That's a really good question. There's so many. Um, I guess I'd have to to pick someone I've I've not ever spoken to before for for interest's sake. Um, 
I think probably Roger Bannister always intrigued me with that breaking the four minute mile. And the reason being that when there were people within the medical profession, everything telling him that they didn't think it was humanly possible for someone to, to break this four minute barrier. And I, I'm really intrigued by the mindset of someone that says, actually, I, I know I can, and I'm going to do everything I can to do it. That, that's really cool. Um, so yeah, I'd love to, to learn a bit more about that mindset because you know I'm all about continuing to break barriers if I can and, and that was kind of I guess the most most famous and most ultimate one and my final question to you before we wrap up the episode is if you have to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away what would that be I'm gonna go go back to earlier in our, our chat about um but kind of bouncing back. I mean, both you and I have uh, have switched sports and and picked ourselves up and you know gone to to Paralympic games. So it's that case of you can be down, but you're never out. You know, there's always a way. There's always a way to to find another another way of doing it. And that's something so incredible. I think with disability sport is that we all most of us are pretty strong at problem solving because we have to approach life in different ways with our our disabilities. So it's just finding another way to get to your end goal. And that's uh, that's something I'd love to to leave our listeners with. So once again, Neil, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been been a great chat. I've really enjoyed it. It's been my absolute pleasure. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friend and do let Neil and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at Neil Fahey. That's N-E-I-L-F-A-C-H-I-E. And as always at James O. Roberts 11, and I'll spell that out again. That's J-A-M-E-S, the letter O, R-O-B-E. RTS and the number 11 and again you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook and in addition if you had any follow-up questions don't hesitate to shoot them over as well and finally don't forget to check out Neil's free quick online quiz that scores you in each of the five areas he talked about in the episode which he also thinks are the most important in world-class performance find out how you score and potentially win a medal and this link will be in the description also, don't forget to check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources. But not forgetting that I've also started a new Facebook group, especially for the podcast, which you can find by typing in the Mindset Athlete. And last but not least, and not forgetting, I've also rebranded my other Facebook group to AIM 24-7 Fat Burning Support Group. So come and check out the AIM Tribe. The links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsin.com under the category general. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.